This is a recording in the chapter of the open book and is number three of a short series dealing with the second coming of Christ in its different phases and aspects. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together so those of you who are sharing this tape recording if you care to join us will you switch off for a little while and read with us from the epistle of Titus chapter 2 and 3. Those of you who have joined with us and read these lines from the epistle of Titus and have perhaps glanced at the first chapter as well, you will see that while it stresses hope in each chapter, chapter 1, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, chapter 2, that we should live looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ, and chapter 3, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Instead of that hope making us into dreamers, that we're not sure whether we're coming or going, it insists in this epistle, six times over, the need there was, there is, for maintaining good works. It tells you that in chapter 3, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. But you haven't got to read further than verse 8 to read, this is a faithful saying, and these things are will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. So that you see, it doesn't follow because you're living, looking for that blessed hope, that you forget your responsibilities, but rather that it will quicken them and clarify your vision. And then you may have noticed in this chapter 2, the word sober and soberly comes. Verse 2, aged men be sober. In verse 4, they teach the young women to be sober. In verse 6, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. And then, when it reaches the bottom of this chapter, verse 12, teaching us, that is the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. Now the word soberly is made up of two words that mean a mind that is in harmony with salvation. A salvation mind. Even in our English language we've retained the two letters S-O, which are the, the stem or root of the word salvation. Soteria is the word salvation. And so we've got this thought that it's not merely old sober sides who never laugh. It's not that. It means it's a mind that's in harmony with salvation. So, those who are living, looking for the appearing of our Saviour, are reminded that the grace of God has already appeared and started fashioning and shaping them. Not very far, I'll admit, in this life, but it's beginning. It's beginning. And one day that appearing is going to have its marvellous almost magical, well, miraculous effect. For John wrote and said, it does not appear what we shall be. He said, now are we the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So you see, in case any of you should come up against that class of person who feels that by taking an interest in prophecy, or looking about these things which are coming presently, 
or especially having our affection set on things above where Christ is in association with the second coming, we shall be a lot of impractical people. Well, you can't make that out from the word of God which teaches it, but all the way through it combines this soberness and walk that's worthy with the highest of heavenly calling. I trust that most of us will understand that that's only just slipped in by the way. I haven't got anybody in mind over that, but we're all tarred with the same brush or whatever other figure we like to name that indicates that we go right back at long last to our first father, Adam, who's left us a legacy that most of us are conscious of many a time. And if you're not conscious of it, most likely your friends would remind you and revive the interest that you've lost in it. Well now, we've come this evening to the calling and the hope attached to it that belongs to the mystery. You notice in Ephesians, the apostle prayed for them that they may be given a wise and revealing spirit that they may know what was the hope of his calling. And that's an important point to keep in mind. For hope is related to calling. If you are among those who are to inherit the earth, that is your calling. Well, it's no good saying, I belong to the Sermon on the Mount people who are to inherit the earth, but I'm looking for the coming of Christ as revealed in Ephesians, because you won't be there. And he won't be there to meet you. You've got to be careful of this. If your calling is in heavenly places, that's where your meeting place will be. When the Lord returns or comes or whatever the word may be, appears or is manifested on your behalf. So, be sure when you're thinking of these things that you don't mix up callings and mix up the hopes attached to them. Uh, Next week when we meet together, we shall demonstrate once more that there are three different spheres of blessing, but it won't do us any harm to be reminded and have our memory jogged. There is the earth, there is the heavenly Jerusalem, and there is the far above all position where Christ is now seated. And the hope which is attached to the earth, or the hope which is attached to the heavenly Jerusalem, is not the blessed hope that they were looking for under Paul's prison, prison ministry. But then we come back again and make another statement that it's all one and the same blessed person. There's not not a separate Christ for each calling. One and the self-same Son of God. He's head of the church, he's king of Israel, he's the bridegroom of the bride and, as it says, all in all. And that should touch our hearts too and make us glad. Well now, there are four words which I think we ought to have a little acquaintance with. We need not be afraid of looking at some of the original words. I'll give you them. Paraphia, Apocalypsis, Epiphania, and Proelpiso. Now I admit, at first, they sound like nothing on earth. So let's become acquainted with them. Draw near and have have a little look. Uh, does anyone say they've never seen the word para? And yet you've heard of a parable in which the lesson is put in two parallel lines. The field is the world. The angels are the reapers. The, see, the two parallel lines being built up. Para, alongside. Or the word apocalypsis, the apo means away from. And the word epiphania, the word epi means above or over. 
And the word prowe applies out the prow in front means well in front. Prow either in time or place. Well now let's, let's introduce these four words to you so that you say, well now, what's the rest of it mean? Well the first one, Parousia is used particularly in the Gospel according to Matthew 24, what should be the sign of thy coming? Coming. It's used in 1 Thessalonians. It's used in 1 Corinthians. It's used by James. But it's never used, never used by the Apostle Paul in the epistles that belong to the mystery. So that the parousia coming belongs to a calling that's different from the calling of the church of the one body. Otherwise he would have used it to link it all together. So we must be careful that we don't mix them up. Now the word parousia means either coming or present or both together in the sense of somebody having arrived. It's so translated that coming or the presence of Stephen and Titus. Perhaps you'd like to get one or two passages where this is used uh, not only in connection with this hope of the coming, but just in ordinary usage. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. This is a little comment made by the Apostle of the things they said about him. Not very complimentary, but I could imagine he had a little twist in his face as he wrote these words. For his letters, they say, that's writing of the Apostle Paul, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. That's what they said of the Apostle Paul. And that word presence is this word which is to do with the coming of Christ. His bodily presence, when he was there with them. I suppose if Michelangelo had carved the statue of Peter, of Paul instead of Peter at Rome, he would have made a magnificent looking statue of him. But the general description that's given of Paul from what we gather from other sources, there's nothing to look at. He also was very conscious of his appearance. He had an affliction of the eyes which in the Middle East in those days must have been pretty wretched. And he said to the Galatians, when I was with you in a bout of sickness, I'm going to give you a literal translation, you did not spit me out, but you received me like an angel, and you would have given your own eyes for me if you could. That was his bodily presence. Oh, what a change in the presence when he gets there in the glory, he'll lay aside all that poor old battered body that he said, where's the marks of the Lord Jesus? Well, now let's get another one. Two of them in the First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 15 relates to the actual second coming itself. This is this, this word for out here. Or personal presence. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But every man, this has to do with the order in resurrection, but every man in his own order or rank. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Here is this personal presence of Christ. Parallel, 
and our fear. And our fear. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, in the same epistle you note, and written almost at the same time, verse 17, I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaeus, Archaeus, for that which was lacking on your part there supplied. Their coming, their personal presence, and of course you know it's a temptation to say that when they brought something that um, helped the Apostle Paul, it was not only their personal presence, but the presence that they bought. It makes me think of a little child who was taken to school, and the teacher said, of course it was only the first introduction to school, he said, oh sit there for the present, well you know what's going to happen, don't you? After about half an hour he started yelling, he said, what's the matter? I've been sitting here a long time and I haven't had the present. Well that's another use of the word present that we've got to watch out that we don't mix them. But they brought their gifts and their presence, quite apart from their gifts, was something to encourage him. Philippians 2.12 Philippians 2.12 He's writing them Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Now, this is an important verse because, you see, it puts the alternative. One of the ways to learn the meaning of a word is to discover its opposite. I've given you this before, I know. In the first or second Corinthians chapter four, we have the word light. But you do not know what it means until I use the alternative. Because if you say, well, light must be opposite to darkness, I say, oh no, the one I'm thinking of is light affliction and the weight of glory. You see, you don't know what light means till you know whether its opposite is weight or darkness. So here we've got a tester. What is the opposite of the parousia? What is the opposite of this word coming? The opposite is absence. Well, there you are, you've got it from the scriptures. That the absent Lord has now returned. So that's one word to keep in mind when you're studying the connection of words in relation to the second coming. Now, what about this next word? The word apocalypsis. Well, that has become more understood because a good many people, if you say, well, in the apocalypse, it says, they would know that you were referring to the book of the Revelation. Or most people would. So what does the word revelation mean, or apocalypsis? Well, let's first of all get the other part of the word, not the apo, but the calypto and the caluma. Because there are words in the New Testament from which it is built. And we go through these to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uses the word caluma, K-A-L-U-M-M-A. And that is used quite a number of times in this uh, chapter referring to the veil. Verse, 15, uh, verse 13. And not as Moses which put a veil over his face. And then the veil is to be done away in verse 14. And in verse 15 the veil is upon their heart. And in verse 16 the veil shall be done away. And then you won't see this word veil in verse 18 but it's there. And we all with open face, what a pity, what a pity that they didn't put unveiled face. 
You see, there's a value in looking at the original, isn't there? A veiled face, a veiled face, a veiled face. Well, we all with unveiled face. What a contrast from the law of Moses and the grace of the gospel. Now in chapter 4, we get the other word, kalupto, which means to veil a thing with a veil. Supposing we read the first few verses. Therefore, see, we have this ministry. As we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. That's all the hidden things, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, I'm going to read without the translation here. But if our gospel be veiled, not merely hid, but if the veil is still there, it is veiled, now I'm going to alter it again, but I can't justify it. It is veiled by those things that are perishing, by which the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. You see, not saying, not saying that if our gospel be hid, it is hid to those people who are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of somebody else. You have a job to make this really get to its point by reading it, you see. But if he's referring to chapter 3, when he said certain things were to be done away, they were to pass away. Well, he's still referring to them, so I'll give you this rendering once more. You sort it out afterwards, if you will. But, if our gospel be veiled, it is veiled by those things that are being done away or put away. Satan is only too glad that you should study the Bible as long as you don't study the right place. He's holding in front of you the veil of Moses to prevent you seeing the glory of God in the face of another one. An unveiled face. The face of Jesus Christ. Let's get this then. I'll say it once more. But if our gospel be veiled, it is veiled by those things that are perishing or being put away. By which the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest, lest the light of the gospel, glorious gospel of Christ which is the image of God, should shine unto them. And it go, again it says, at the end of verse 6, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The key word of chapter 2 and 3 is the faith. In the one case, it's a faith that's veiled the face of Moses, that they shouldn't see that the glory that was shining there was a transient thing passing away. And the next one is the face of Jesus Christ, who needed no veil, so it's permanent, gloriously there forever. All right, that was not our subject this evening. These are only just thrown in, so we'll have to uh, let them speak for themselves. Now let's get this um, word revelation or apocalypse from two other passages. 2 Thessalonians 1 7. 2 Thessalonians 1 7. It's right in the midst of an argument with them, but he's telling them that they're suffering at the moment for the kingdom of God, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance and so on. The revelation of Jesus Christ is connected with coming with the armies of heaven, with a sword and with judgment, very many times. 
Then uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, 13, there is an aspect of that revelation which of course is a hope. If you're not one of the enemies, you're looking for that kingdom to be set up upon the earth. Peter himself was, because you remember he was given the uh, prospect of sitting on one of the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, so that would be the millennial kingdom. But he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, or is another one telling you to be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well now the third word, epiphaniah. We ought to be a little bit accustomed to that because it's the word epiphany. And anyone who's been associated with the church festivals and services and periods of the year knows that that is in the prayer book. Epiphany. Epi, above or over. And the other part of the word means to shine. And so it is translated either to appear or to be manifested. Now I rather feel that the modern use of the word appear is not quite good enough because to my mind for someone to appear is like suddenly is there. It's like a sort of a pantomime fairy or something. But the word manifestation has the feeling that he may have been veiled or waiting in the background and then the light shines and there's no possibility of missing of course, you're not losing anything if you keep to the word appear. You're not losing anything if you also add to it the other thought of an outshining, the manifestation. So, shall we get this word epiphania and the uh, usages of this word? I'll go right back first of all to Luke, the first chapter, verse 79. And if you say, isn't this an awful bother looking at all these verses? Well, I've had all the awful bother first things, haven't I? So, you just give me a chance to help you. Luke one seventy nine, To give light to them that sit in darkness, and shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. To give light, you see? To give light. So, there is something more in it than merely to appear. Although you can't be expected to appear, unless there is light. Well then, in Acts 27, verse 20, it has a pe peculiar reference to the stars. This is a shipwreck. Verse 19, the third day, we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship, and when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, well, when they did appear, of course, the, the light was getting through. But when they did not appear, the light was being held back or baffled. So we've got the idea of an outshining. And then we come to Titus that we read just now, and we'll put that in its place. This is the same word, the word epiphania, which is the hope of the church of the one body. So we'll go now to Titus and look at that a bit more carefully. Titus chapter 2. And it is, as, as I suggested when we were reading it, this high doctrine, this wonderful revelation of the second coming, is intimately linked with soberness and practice and works that are in harmony with our calling. And so he addresses servants in verse 9. And they were not servants as they are today. They were servants who had no unions. They couldn't go on strike or work according to rules. 
they were more or less the possession of their masters. But he said to them, Servants, exhort them to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. Now he brings them from their servitude, and perhaps there's a good deal of it that was hard to bear, into this light of the second coming of Christ. For, he says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. But how should we live like? How could we get like that? He says we should live. Now I'll go back again and lift out the one sentence and leave the other parts out for the moment. For the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us that we should live looking. So the more a person has his affection set upon things above, instead of being a useless person with his head in the clouds, he will be the one who will be spared many a slip, many an awful collapse. He will live looking for what? Looking for that blessed hope. He's given it that word, that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing, yes, or possibly the appearing of the glory, comes much of the same thing. The appearing, the manifestation of the glory. You see, both the word Apocalypse and the word Epiphania suggest that for the moment it's veiled, it's hidden. We walk by faith and not by sight. We've never seen the glory of the Lord as the Apostle Paul saw it on the road to Damascus. But one day, the veil is to be taken away. One day, the darkness is to be dispelled. So we live looking for that blessed hope and the appearing or the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Our version reads, the great God, and then says, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Well, there's no statement in any scripture that we live looking for the appearing or the manifestation of the great God. And if you say it means that, well, then our Saviour, Jesus Christ, is thrown in and you don't know where to put it. And the true re- rendering is our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Six times in this epistle we read about Saviour. Three times it's God our Saviour. Three times it's Jesus Christ our Saviour in the same epistle. So the Apostle had no doubt and we have no doubt as to what he meant. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from and redeem us to that he might redeem us from all iniquity, that's negative, and purify unto himself, that's positive, a peculiar people. So don't wonder if some people think you're a bit peculiar, but don't ask for it, friends, don't do a lot of silly things, that doesn't adorn the doctrine, but if you seek to walk humbly and soberly and righteously, live looking for that blessed hope, you'll be peculiar enough in their estimation. Oh yes. But it has a very precious meaning, especially in the Old Testament. Do you know the one that you can link with this? Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord, when I make up my jewels. His peculiar treasure 
those that belonged to him in a very special sense. David said that he'd made contributions for the temple generally, but out of mine own peculiar good I have given. So we have now, we are like the people of Israel from another angle, a peculiar people. And then he adds, zealous of good works. Well, that'll make it peculiar enough if nothing else will, friend. Well, there we have then set out before us these three words, parousia, apocalypse, apocalypsis, and Epiphania. Then the other word was pro elpizo. We go for that to the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter one. You remember that Ephesians chapter one, the first fourteen verses, first of all takes us back before the foundation of the world and up into heavenly places. Then it comes back again to this earth where we have the redemptive work of Christ. And then we have the seal of the Spirit. And that's the part that we are dealing with just now. It says um, in verse 12 that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now I'm going to admit that I don't think that it's possible for anyone to come down absolutely with regard to the meaning of this expression. You can get in general. So if I express my opinion you take it for all it's worth and still go on searching and waiting. First of all, the word pro, meaning beforehand, it can mean before in the sense of uh, time, or it can mean for in the sense of priority. We speak about a prior. Well, a prior isn't one who's there in time, but is one there in dignity. So this may mean, I mean both. It says, in, in whom ye also, after the, that ye heard the word, oh, who first trusted in Christ. That's it, that's the bit that we were looking at. It's rather a pity that the word trust has sometimes been used in the authorised version for the word hope. Now, it's quite good if you, if you use the word trust always, but you say, you could hardly say, looking for that blessed trust. You see? So that sometimes in one verse it says hope and the next verse it says trust. And you lose the context. So we're going to put the word back and say we'll keep the same word. That we should be to the praise of his glory who were pro elpizo in a state of prior hope. In a state of prior hope. Now if there are three spheres of blessing and Christ is at the right hand of God, when he stands up, and the moment has come for the second coming to take place, those who belong to the super heavenly calling come first. They are in a state of prior hope. And then he leaves them behind in the glory, and he comes, and another lot of saints meet him in the air. That's the second move. And then finally his feet stand upon the Mount of Olives, and that's the third move. So we are in the state of prior hope with regard to time. But on top of that, this word also means to have some preeminence. Some sort of feeling uh, that um, this is over and above. So we have a prior hope in the sense that the nobody can be above this calling. Where Christ sits, far above all heavens, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. There's nothing beyond this. 
Well, that's our hope, friends. If it weren't in the Scriptures, it would be presumption to even contemplate it. But there it is. Well, now, the next thing is to see that we have an association in these epistles with a city in every corner. Let me remind you that our Saviour in Matthew 21, now I'm leaving for the moment the special calling that we have in order to touch the three of them. So we're going back to Matthew, and in the 21st chapter of Matthew, you find our Saviour doing something that at first you might wonder why. Matthew 21, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the fold of an ass. And they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, verse 9. And then the parable said, as soon as the sun was up, because they had no deepness of earth, the very ones who cried, Hosanna, in a few days' time, said, Away with him, crucify him. But he did what was said. He would present himself to the people as their king. Now, in our case, that wouldn't have meant, we wouldn't have known what it meant. But when one of the sons of David would usurp his father's throne, he rode through the country on an ass with others with him. The ass was a signal of claiming royalty. We don't think so in our case. In their case, yes. And so our Saviour presented himself. And all the city was moved. But then you remember in the next two, two or three chapters, it says in chapter 23, All Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth the chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till you say, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So you see, they said it. But there were other things to be done. In that, if you go back to the prophet Zechariah, there were other things to be done. They shall look upon me, whom they pierced, saith the Lord, and they shall mourn for me. That's got to be done. And, well, I think perhaps we ought to perhaps pick up Zechariah and uh, get these passages together. Chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. We'll get the original, get the original prophecy. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt the fold of an ass. And so it goes on. Verse 10. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. Ah, this is, this is the stopping and final dissolution of all armaments. This is how it's going to come about. 
and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea, even to sea, and from the river, even to the ends of the earth. That's the coming we're waiting for. There are some people who tell me that Christ has been here for I don't know how many years in secret. Well, when he comes, there's going to be no more war. So evidently something slipped up somewhere, friend. I, I wouldn't like to say where. I wouldn't be too rude for that. Now, uh, again in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. We've quoted it, but we'll read it. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So Pentecost was an anticipation of this, like the riding on the ass was an anticipation of the earlier chapter. Both of them doing it, but not the right time, the people were not ready. But here it shall be, they didn't do this at Pentecost, but here they will. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. Verse chapter 13, in that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And chapter 14, verse 4, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north and half to the south and so on. All these things have to be pieced together, as you will see. But we're just touching upon this question. Well now, when we come to um, another passage I'd like to quote quickly, Romans the 11th chapter, verse 26. Romans 11th chapter, verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion. There's always this connection with that city when the hope is being realized. Here it is called Zion. They shall come out of Zion, the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness to Jacob. And you will find in Isaiah 51 that the, the Deliverer shall come to Zion. And in the chapter 60, Arise, shine, for thy light is come. That is the first, the basic calling, the one to do with the earth. Well then in the Epistle to the Hebrews, I, my time is past going, the Epistle to the Hebrews we have in chapter 11 and chapter 12 our affections are turned now, our thoughts are turned away from Jerusalem which is on the earth to Jerusalem which is above. And there we have the statement made that Abraham, who had already received the promise of the land, and that was indefectible, it was his, he couldn't forfeit it, he was quite willing to be a tent dweller and be a sojourner in the very land of promise because he looked for a better country and a better city. And that city in chapter 12 is said to be, verse 22, Ye come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So there we are in the book of the Revelation, the millennial kingdom and the rule of that city over the earth constitutes the second phase of hope. Well then the third is found in Ephesians and in the Philippians, the citizenship. Shall we look now for that and that will bring our study again to a close.
Ephesians chapter 2. By nature, they had no relationship to the citizenship of Israel. That's verse 12. Our version reads commonwealth. And you might perhaps think of the commonwealth of nations. But it's strictly speaking the citizenship. For at that time, ye were without Christ, being aliens from the citizenship of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope. Now hope has become theirs because Christ has come, made all the difference. And so it says, verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers, as you were in verse 12, and foreigners, as you were in verse 12, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So there's citizenship involved in the prospect of of the second coming. And then if you'll turn to Philippians 3, you'll see what will take place when that coming is realized. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our conversation, and here again, we've got the word citizenship. In one passage we get the word commonwealth, another place we get the word conversation, and it doesn't focus our attention so sharply. This polite humour, you can hear the word polite. Well, that may have to do with mere conversation. But conversation means a manner of life, as well as the way you speak. And citizenship is involved. For our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. We may not be there, but our citizenship is there. And it's safe. From whence? From whence? From that very place where our citizenship is. We look Also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will he do? Or what will happen when we see him, when he comes? Who shall change our vile body? (coughs) Well, some of us have got vile bodies, possibly. But the word vile has lost its meaning today, or changed its meaning a little bit from what it had in 300 years ago. This is the very same term which we use in chapter 2 when it says of Christ he humbled himself and became a man. Well he, well, he didn't make himself vile in a wicked sense, but he humbled himself. Who shall exchange this body of our humiliation, that's the one we've got now, this body of our humiliation, like unto his body of glory. That's the hope in front of us, face. And if you say, well how? Well, the apostles say, I can't tell you how, but I'll, I'll point you where the power is, according to the power, working, whereby he is able, even to subdue all things unto himself. So that we have three phases of the hope. And these three, we're not robbing anybody, but the more we sort them out and see them in the distinctness, the more we shall be able to walk worthy of them, realising our calling is associated with our hope, and not in any measure conflicting with others. Well, to round it off, in our next study, we will introduce the three spheres and try to confirm it from another point of view, and then we should have to leave that and go on to other studies.